0: All right, it's the new year. We're just into the new year a little bit, and uh, of course, every year people like to look back and look at the, you know, and make predictions for the coming year. And of course, uh, when you look back at how they did, a lot of times they didn't do so well. But curiously, someone made predictions back in 1900 that have gotten a second look. That turned out he did pretty well. Writer and editor Jeff Nilsen has taken a look back at an article from December of 1900 by a man named John Elfrith Watkins, and the results are pretty curious. And here to talk about uh, that article 110 years ago is Jeff Nilsson. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Jeff. Thanks, Doug. What, uh, actually, what drew your attention to this piece?
1: Well, I do a weekly um, piece on the Saturday Evening Post website on some of the articles that have run in the Post uh, over the past 190 years. And every every New Year's, I do something, pull up another prediction because regularly people would uh, run a story on predictions for this year and the next few years. And th- I had seen this one several years ago, and I pulled it out of Ladies' Home Journal, not from the Post, because back in 1900. Curtis Publishing uh, produced both of those magazines. So I had been aware of this for a while. I thought I'd run with it this year. And I just sort of wrote up with the angle that actually this, uh, this set of predictions was fairly accurate. In fact, I was counting them up last night, and I think there's about... Oh, fifty predictions that he makes overall, and I would say sixty to sixty-five percent of them are accurate, which is pretty good considering he was looking down the road a hundred and hundred and ten years later.
0: Particularly since a lot of things that we take for granted now had yet to even uh, come on board, things like you know, f- flying machines. <laughs> when he when he wrote this article, yeah. uh, the Wright brothers had not yet flown.
1: Yeah, that's true. Now, interestingly, um, he predicted that that airplanes would be Flying um, before the end of the century. Just one year prior, um, there had been a set of predictions written up by the head of the patent office, and that was published in the Post. And he said, in 50 years, human beings still will not have been able to um, figure out how to fly. (laughs) So, Elfred Watkins, who we know very little of, apparently was uh, farther, you know, could see farther down the road. And, you know, the predictions are, they're a little less impressive since we know how things turned out. But being able to call this a 1900 is pretty far-sighted. And most predictions that are made, you know, either are very fuzzily termed or else they simply say, well, we have something this week and next week it'll probably be bigger. It's not really hard to imagine that. But when you jump way out of current technology to call something that there is no precedent for, that's pretty. That's pretty gutsy.
0: Well, Jeff, I've tried to put myself in the position of someone looking forward from from the gay '90s era, and and uh, at that time, of course, one of his predictions is, which we take totally for granted, is that you'll be able to have like sound synced with images. I mean, because that, that was 20 years before there were 30 years before there were talkies in in motion pictures.
1: Right, and there would be color photographs, and um, at the time. Um, motion pictures were purely mechanical they were basically hand cranked film and you had one copy and it took forever to produce it but he was saying here that photographs uh... would be uh... could be captured in china and seen anywhere in the world within an hour uh... at the time i figured that for the most part if if there was an image captured in China it probably would have been a drawing there weren't that many photographers and it might take a week to be distributed uh to the rest of the world this guy is saying an hour uh using photography that's pretty far sighted
0: it it certainly is i i can remember jeff also that i mean one thing he not to go off on this too much, but he, no one at this time, I think, saw, uh, foresaw um, uh, artificial satellites. But I remember in the 1960s seeing a live event from Europe and being so stunned that, oh my God, this is taking place right now. So that—that's something that in—in in our, in our lifetime we've actually seen this great advancement.
1: Yeah, and he's—he um, was saying, yeah, that in the future there will be these. There'll, there'll be telescopes. who will be able to see the Earth from high up in the sky, he wasn't really talking about outer space, maybe that was inconceivable. I guess we've become accustomed to these revolutions in technology. I remember reading that when they ran the first instant replay on a football game yeah. back in the yeah. 50s, the announcer had to repeat, this is not live, <laughs> this is not happening, this is a recording, all the way through the replay. right, right, because right, right. of course, how could you possibly show the thing a second time?
0: Right. Uh, well, it's, it's interesting that a lot of things he... He didn't explain how we would do them exactly. He made sort of guesses, but thought, you know, we're going to have, like, you know, the, as you say, the ability to see something from a long way away. He didn't see satellites, but yet he thought we'd be able to do it. And again, this is, I think, an example of how uh, futurists and science fiction writers and such say, we ought to have X, or we ought to have something that can do this, and then, of course, engineers go out and make it possible.
1: Yeah. And even though there's not the current technology. Now, Watkins was a civil engineer. Uh He'd been working with a railway. He had been a construction manager for the Pennsylvania Railroad, and at the time he wrote this, he was the curator of the transportation display at the Smithsonian Institute, and he was known as the foremost authority on the history of the railway and the history of mechanical development. So what he knew was machinery, but not all of these things that he's predicting are necessarily coming from um, out of machinery. So... He shouldn't really have had, you know, there's no training that he would have had to say, in the future, there'll be such things as factory farms for chickens and beef. You know, that wasn't his area of expertise. And there was certainly nothing being done on that level. So the question is, where did he come up with these ideas?
0: From what I can see, as you say, tallying up the the pluses and the minuses, he's pretty damn good when it came to engineering. Maybe not so good as some of the... uh, uh, the biologic things. You seem to be obsessed with giant fruit and vegetables. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we are going to be eating those giant strawberries until we die. Uh, they were going to be enormous. They will probably roll over and crush us. Uh, the size you know, of apples,
0: he... I think he was calling for.
1: <laughs> yeah, the size of apples. And apples will probably be the size of basketballs. <laughs> At the time, that wasn't really that far fetched because. Um, hybridization and better fertilization was producing larger crops, he just figured it would keep going that way.
0: Yeah, I don't think he got that all that wrong. If you look at what a wild strawberry looks like and you see what even the last couple of generations have done to the size of that fruit, they're not quite apples, but boy, they they, they have gotten a lot larger.
1: It's one of those uh, predictions, I think, where we may just be reading this a little too early. <laughs> exactly. Maybe another 10 years people say, wow, he got that one right too. Yeah some of the produce uh things he might have miscalled that you know he said that there would be black green and blue roses they exist yeah um And I guess I I guess they didn't in 1900. It's hard to remember what was there and what was not there at the time. He did predict that uh, human beings, average American, would increase in height by two inches, and that's almost exactly how much they increased. Right, right. So he got that one right. He called. There were 76 million people in America in 1900. He said that by 19, well, by the year 2000. There would be 300 million to 500 million.: Yeah, you know, we were at 300, and we're about a 300 million. Right. Um, just a little short of that, at the turn of the, uh, the 21st century. But that's quite a prediction, considering that that would say that the U.S. was not going to continue growing at the rate it had. That's a much lower figure than they would have expected, considering the immigration rates in 1900.
0: Yeah, he also makes a, one of a few political predictions that we might, that uh, the people in, in Central and South America, they might vote to join the United States. And of course, that didn't happen. And, and if some of those states had, our population would be about where he thought it would be.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I was surprised by that one. And I went back and I looked, why is, does he think Nicaragua wants to become a state? <laughs> and at the time, in 1900, Nicaragua and Colombia were being considered as sites for the uh, the canal between right. the Gulf and the Pacific. And Nicaragua had their lobbyists up in uh, the U.S., and they certainly wanted to sell themselves as the site of the canal. So with all these lobbyists saying, we're so pro-U.S., we're just like the 51st state, or actually the 48th state right. at the time, Uh, that it might not have been hard for him to say, I can see where this would go. Uh, Nicaragua would only be better off if it was a state. Maybe that's how they saw it in 1900.
0: Well, Jeff, I don't know if you ever heard the story, but apparently when they were looking at putting the canal through, the, through Central America and they were looking at Lake Nicaragua uh, before they picked the spot in Panama, someone came up with a commemorative stamp of Nicaragua to p- try and promote it, and they showed one of Nicaragua's volcanoes, and when members of Congress thought, this place has volcanoes, the interest in the canal went way down.
1: <laughs> I've seen pictures of that, too, and I can't believe... I think it's one of the few times that postage stamps have determined U.S. <laughs> foreign policy.
0: Indeed. You know, one, one heartbreakingly uh, wrong prediction for me was that he thought there would be a reform of our English alphabet, and we'd throw out a few letters that weren't necessary, and we'd we'd spell things more phonetically, and I'm I'm sorry to see that that hasn't happened.
1: Yeah, that's there was a big movement. Teddy Roosevelt really uh, was behind that, and he was big at the time. Now, he's wrong when he says that the letters C, Q, and X are going to disappear from the English language. Uh, They're certainly around. But if you read just beyond that, because he says they'll be abandoned because they're unnecessary, but he said um, that we will use uh, fewer words and fewer letters to say more things. And I think of the people who are texting out there, uh, I-M-H-O-L-O-L, and they are sort of abbreviating more things because – you know they're typing with their thumbs they don't yeah, want to uh, right. do this out longhand
0: maybe premature yeah i and I, and i hope and i hope that's the case because you know o u g h being pronounced nine different ways
1: that that's got to go <laughs> yeah that's right and then he, he it's a great prediction then he follows it up unfortunately by saying english will be more extensively spoken than any other language i think that might be chinese now but he said the second most popular language will be russian hard to see where he got that one but i think it's fairly safe to say that didn't work out
0: right he, there was a couple of course we always like to look at the spectacularly wrong ones and 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 for my money yeah. the ones about ho- mosquitoes and houseflies and roaches will be practically exterminated and there will be virtually no uh... no animals he said except in menageries boy was that that out of left field
1: yeah whereas i will say yeah he was definitely off base he was right in saying that in predicting how the disappearance of the horse was going to affect America. True. One of the reasons that there was going to be less disease was the fact that we were just going to get rid of horses. Um, As I found um, in my research, in New York City in 1900, horses produced uh, 1,200 tons of manure every day. Wow. In addition, horses and uh, horse-drawn vehicles... Um, killed people at a higher rate than um, automobiles are killing in New York City now. The uh, road road fatalities were higher because of um, horse-drawn vehicles, which I guess had less control, or horses that broke free. So in a way, that's uh, anticipating that the roads will be safer and the climate will be healthier, because when the manure is gone, so are the uh, flies that breed on them. And so he was... He got that right, but yeah, the fact that the wild animals would disappear fortunately, he was very wrong on that
0: yeah you know I, I, as I think about it, maybe i am under undervaluing Mr. Watkins about the the flies disappearing because I remember in Sydney, Australia. Uh, visit a couple decades ago, I was astonished at the number of flies that people seem to take for granted. And people explain to me, well, they have so many sheep, and then the sheep are penned not that far away, and that's that's why we have so many flies. So I, I guess that uh, New York City probably has, is relatively fly, versus 1900. <laughs>
1: yeah. And he's also saying that food will be more sanitary. This was a big push in the 1900s. To package the food in sanitary containers, so that you wouldn't uh come not only did you not have trichinosis in pork because it was inspected, but um fresh produce did not sit out indefinitely t- uh for all these flies to carry disease around and we take that for granted now uh with the pure Food and Drug act, but at the time when before that existed, you really took your chances when you picked up uh some meat at the uh the butcher or uh something else at the grocery store
0: yes yes indeed he um he also, in essence, I guess, saw the 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 rise of dining out. Of course, with fast food, and other places we do so much of. He was saying that uh, ready cooked meals will be bought from establishments similar to our bakeries today. And of course, we take that for granted. From but from 1900, that was revolutionary.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, now the other one that I've laughed about is uh, his idea that food would be served to houses directly to houses through pneumatic tubes and when you were done with the meal the <laughs> empty the, the the dirty dishes we put on a tray and sent by a pneumatic tube back to wherever they came from um, now that's that's kind of ridiculous but then he said where well, let me see if I can find uh where he's talking about this when he says this he said, all of this food is going to be cr- uh, created in these kitchens, these giant kitchens. And these kitchens are going to be so advanced because they'll, be able, they'll have electric appliances. And so he started listing all these things that um, yeah, yeah. the new electric appliances would be able to do. And I realized, no, they don't have these things. He says, there's going to be electric coffee grinders and electric egg beaters and electric stirrers and shakers and pears and meat choppers and meat saws and potato mashers electric dishwashers and dish dryers. And it's going to be much more sanitary.
0: Yeah, and we, we take that so for granted, but you realize, again, revolutionary from the time from which he's writing.
1: It is a time of great optimism in 1900. They've had a number of different, you know, big breakthroughs in technology, and the telephone is still coming in, and photography is starting to get very popular and affordable. And I think people were very optimistic, but it's incredible that in all of these things he's saying... These are great advancements. Every one of these predictions is going to be a positive effect on your life.
0: And, of course, as some people have pointed out, uh, you know, these optimistic predictions didn't really see much in the way of, well, transpired in the way of two world wars, for example.
1: Yeah. Now, if he had predicted that, then I think he'd be going (laughs) up and digging up his bones and making a religion out of them. He spoke well about technology. I think he was well-grounded for that. I think it would have been discouraging in 1900 if you told people, okay, there's going to be a World War, then there'll be a Depression, then there'll be a Second World War, and then there's going to be a Cold War. It'll go all the way to the end of the century.
0: What's funny about this is that as we had the turn of the century here uh, a decade ago, many people were looking forward. And I think, in a similar blindness to maybe 1900, uh, no one is foreseeing the kind of economic crunches we've seen, and kind of the, some of the economic stupidity we've had uh, that's been so evident in the past decade. And that's, I guess, I guess nobody wants to make predictions like that.
1: I think in 1900, maybe they expected that. Well, people will have learned uh, from our past mistakes. I'm sure in the future they're not going to allow um, this you know, unchecked uh, investment of major portions of the economy, they're not going to be doing that 100 years from now. (laughs) Um, It's like that, let me see, I think it was in uh, Tulsa, back in the 50s, they buried a a car, a brand-new car, 1956 Chrysler, I believe. Uh They put it in a cement block, and they buried it in a time capsule. And when they dug it up, they were very disappointed to find out that the time capsule had leaked and the water had come in and rusted out the, and ruined the car, made it undrivable. Uh-huh. But what was interesting was that on the car seat of that car was a container of gasoline. They put gasoline in there in the 1950s because they thought, well, in the 1990s when they dig this up, where are they going to get gasoline from? We, obviously, they won't right. move to a new energy source. Right,
0: right, right. Well, you better, we better put some gas so these guys don't know what to, what to power this thing with.
1: <laughs> That's right. They wonder where the batteries on this thing.
0: Oftentimes, the
1: predictions he made are
0: partly right and partly wrong, which is sort of fascinating. He thought the gymnastics would be big in the future, and that he said every school, college, and community will have a complete... Gymnasium. And of course, if you look at the health clubs and how that spread across the country, you could say, well, that, that one's substantially right. Uh, places to exercise are everywhere. But then he ruins it in the final sentence by saying, a man and woman unable to walk 10 miles at a stretch will be regarded as a weakling. And if, if
1: only that were so. <laughs> yeah, um, I know at the turn at the of the century there was a big movement among German-Americans to uh, to have these Turnverein or these gymnastic clubs. And you'd go there, and it's kind of like yoga today, you would go there and you'd do gymnastics. And if we did them enough, they believed, we would not only would we be healthier, we'd have a more moral society. And viewed at that time, El- Elfrith Watkins probably must have thought, you know, in a hundred years from now, everybody's going to be in great shape. And in some regards, we are. Our mm-hmm. health is better. We're far more aware of the risks of our health. And we, we know what's going to happen to us if we just sit and watch TV every night, which they didn't know in 1901 because they didn't have TV. And they just didn't understand congestive heart failure and arter- arteriosclerosis.
0: Jeff, it's been a pleasure talking about these predictions. I just I just was sort of surprised to realize that you are writing for the Saturday Evening Post. And, and the Post, I guess, is back. And I and, and, uh, wasn't aware of this.
1: Yeah, we're still we're still around. It's a general interest magazine. It comes out every other month, uh, like every other magazine. You know, we're we're struggling to redefine ourselves, but we're in great company because every magazine in the, the nation is uh, struggling to find its new role in a uh, web saturated world. And what is going to be the role of magazines? Fortunately, I'm writing for the web, so I don't, it's it's not as I don't see that pressure as much, but. The Post is definitely here. We're still in business, and we're going to stay in business.
0: Well, God bless you. We're not professional journalists at this program, but we think that uh, the idea of everybody just blogging and the citizens coming forward to do this is not not quite going to make it. I'm glad the the pros like you are still at it.
1: Well, thank you. It's SaturdayEveningPost.com for everybody, <laughs> just in case.
0: And I know you have an article in there about, uh, I was looking at it, uh, the young Muhammad Ali, which looks fascinating. I'm looking to read that <laughs> Maybe we can have you come on in the future and talk about some other stuff you're doing.
1: I'd be delighted.
0: Jeff Nilsson, thank you so much. Thanks, Doug.